You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Second Chronicles chapter 1, Second Chronicles chapter 1 is where we'll be. We'll read the, pe- the text here and then... And you can be seated. We'll get into the message tonight. Second Chronicles chapter 1. And we'll read, I know this is familiar for, for many of us, this, these verses here tonight. Second Chronicles chapter 1. But I'm going to apply it tonight in a way that probably uh, you don't hear it applied very often. Second Chronicles chapter 1. And we will begin reading in verse 7. And many of you know this is the story of Solomon asking for wisdom. And... and uh, and it's a, this is a great prayer, a great request on Solomon's behalf. But there's something else in here I want to look at tonight as a help to us. It says in verse 7, In that night did God appear unto Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. And Solomon said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established. For thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can judge this thy people that is so great? What a prayer of humility. And God said to Solomon, because this was in thine heart, and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet has asked long life, but has asked wisdom and knowledge uh, for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and I will give thee riches and wealth, and honor, such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, neither shall there any after thee have the like. I love the fact that God says, because you asked for wisdom and knowledge, I'll give you all the other things that you probably wanted to ask for. And there's a principle here that I want to see that applies to finances And as soon as I say finances, you know, people run for the hills. But I do think it's something that we need to address from time to time uh, because our daily lives are made up of the decisions we make with our finances. And, And I trust that the Lord will help us to see this principle tonight. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. As we enter into the, the fall season for, or as a church, there are two significant events on my mind. Obviously, the first, we've talked about it tonight, we prayed about it, is the Church Planners Conference coming up next week. The, the, other, the other big event, hopefully you know this as well, it's just over a month away. What do you think I would be thinking of in October? The missions revival, right? And we call, I called it missions revival last year. I like the, that idea, so we're calling it missions revival again this year. It's just over a month away. On October 20th is when it begins. And we're, I'm excited about that. But both of these two events, uh, the, the church planning conference, missions revival, 
they're, they're connected to the Great Commission, obviously. Church planting is, is about a, more of a local or, or regional focus, um, while missions would be more about a glo- on a global scale. Uh, but both are biblical applications of the Great Commission. Um, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. We're familiar with that verse. Jerusalem would be like our Sioux Falls. Judea would be maybe like South Dakota. Um, Samaria might be like our, our country, the United States. And then the uttermost part of the earth would be worldwide missions. Uh, so church planting would be more regional or local, Jerusalem, Judea, uh, maybe Samaria. And the uttermost part of the earth would be worldwide missions. So both of these, these two events, have a very concentrated focus on the efforts of the Great Commission, both here and also abroad. And that's, that's going to be a big focus for us this fall. The other element about those two events is this, and this one isn't quite as inspiring, but here it is. The, they both heavily focus on finances. And so, you know, church planting, it, those church planters, they're going to stand here, and the way that it works, if you weren't here last year, we have, I think at this point, maybe eight or nine church planters signed up to be here, which we're excited about. And they'll stand right here and they will present their needs. They'll tell everyone what they're doing and they'll list off some of the things that are their biggest needs. And then right among from our, 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 the congregation or, or even our church, but also pastors and staff, um, I'll, I'll start maybe on this side over here and, and Brother Charles would stand and say, I'm going to give $10,000 tonight to this first church planner and and uh, then his wife, you know, she'd stand up and she'd try to, she'd try to outdo him. And then they, we'd have a bidding war. It'd be great. I mean, lots of fun. So I'd start somewhere over here and a church, a, a staff member or a pastor or a church member would stand and say, I'd like to give a certain amount for this church planner. And somebody might say, I'd like to give, uh, or we'd like to take them on for support monthly for a year, something like that. And what I like about it, it's a very tangible engagement in the Great Commission, you know, somebody that's actually literally going out with the gospel and in close enough that if we wanted to, we could go visit them where they are, which is what I think is exciting about church planting. A lot of times on a mission field, you don't get to go see it with your own two eyes, but these church planters are, are within many of them a few hours of us. It's very exciting. Also, though, in the missions revival, we'll have missionaries and they will stand here and present their field. They'll, they'll present their plan and their heart for the people and their needs much like Brother Spillman did on Sunday night. And, uh, and, you know, it was just a blessing to hear his heart that he's carrying on the legacy of his parents, second-generation missionaries to Ukraine. I'm telling you, that's, that excites me. I get excited about that. We, you know, we're going uh, to have missionaries to at least two families here with us, the Kitchen family to Germany, the Barlow family to Slovenia. So we've got a European focus this year. And uh, then we have a special speaker, Bruce Humbert. He'll be here with us as well. But, you know, we can give to two different ways in the missions revival. In the weeks leading up, we have what we'll call the missions offering. And, uh, and we did this last year where we asked families, every family unit or individuals to 
to give, maybe even sacrificially give toward a one-time offering that will help take care of the financial needs of the week. It'll help us take good care of our missionaries and their families while they're here because we want to be a blessing to those families. I mean, they're willing to invest a week of their time in our church to help us have a heart for missions. And I'm all about then returning an investment in them and, and giving them a special week. And I, I'd like to ask you even to begin praying now for what you and your family might give to that offering. And if it's sacrificial, that's great. It just ask the Lord to lead you. I think last year we brought in about $6,000 as a church. And it was, it was a, a great help to, to take care of our missionaries that were here and the, week, the week's costs. In addition to that, you can also give to Faith Promise. And Faith Promise is a commitment that you make that you give over the course of a year. And many families, they decide that they'll give a certain amount of their check um, on a weekly basis. Or if you get paid biweekly, you give a certain amount on top of your tithe to missions. And many families in our church, they do that every week. Our family does that. Uh, many others do. Some give a certain percentage. And they say, well, if I give my tithe, it's 10%. I'll give 5% to missions. Uh, many give more than that. They give more than their tithe to missions. It's an incredible, uh, an incredible uh, commitment of faith to say, I believe that God will provide for our family over the next year so that we can give to missions in this way. And I'm going to ask you to pray about that too. If you've never gotten involved in Faith Promise Missions Giving, the Missions Revival, it's a great time to seek the Lord about what he'd have you to give. Here's the point, and I don't preach about giving very much, but here's the point, though. The Lord's work depends on the financial investment of the Lord's people. The Lord's work is dependent. Now, listen, you say, well, I, I, we just trust God. Well, right, but, but you also have to do your part. And we obey God... And he blesses us. We, yes, we're dependent on him, but we're dependent on him because we obey what he tells us to do and we trust that he will bless us for it. He doesn't say just sit there, you hold the shovel and the hole will just appear. No, you have to dig. And so we, will, we do our part, we obey, we give, God blesses it. But listen, the Lord's work, it requires financial investment of his people. From the Old Testament with the tabernacle and then the temple to the New Testament with local churches, finances have been a part of it from the beginning. The Lord's work requires the financial investment of the Lord's people. I mean, just like it's his plan to reach the world through local churches involved in the Great Commission, it's God's plan to support the work of the ministry by the faithful giving of local church members. And I just want to say first, thank you for giving generously. Thank you for giving faithfully. I'm thankful that as a church that, you know, I don't, I don't hardly ever even talk about giving or preach about giving. Um, but Eastside Baptist Church has a good track record of consistent and generous and faithful financial investment. Thank you. I appreciate it. Second, as we come into this season, though, I found myself praying for and considering the personal finances of our church family members more than ever before. And part of that is because it's been a weird year and a half. I mean, I don't know about you, but I mean, there was a lot when, when COVID first did all of it, it was doing and, and things were shut down and I, I didn't know what it was going to be like. I mean, and that's a, right, Brother Palace, it's a scary position to be in. Nothing like that's ever happened before. We've never seen it. And I mean, don't know what it's going to turn into. You don't know how it's going to impact 
people. You don't know how it's going to impact finances. I, I mean, it was, a very, it was a big unknown. We're not sure. And, and so, I, you know, it's been on my mind more than most times. I've prayed probably for uh, the jobs of the people in our church more um, in the last year and a half than I ever have. It's, it's stretched the faith of others. It's, it's affected the jobs of some people here. And when I consider that the effectiveness of this ministry is dependent on God's people having their finances in order, it makes me all the more dependent on the Lord to help us have the right mindset toward it. We need to approach this the right way. Um, the, all it takes is a few individual families to be affected financially or to develop different priorities, and our church would have to function differently. Now, it's God's church, and I had to say that Thankfully, this is God's church. And let me just say this too, uh, that, that, I, that we, I don't desire an attitude from any families in our church that says, well, you know, the church really needs our financial investment. You know, I, and I, I, I'm thankful for, an, for financial investment, I am. But we should never get to the place where we think that God needs our help. And if he doesn't have our help, this thing's going to fold. No, that's not the right mentality. The mentality is, listen, I'm going to do everything I can out of obedience and faith, and God is the one that makes it all happen. But it takes faithful giving by normal people, just average people, not rich people. I mean, blue-collar people, hardworking people. But all it takes is for some of us to get our priorities off and things look different. And our diligence toward personal finances literally affects the work of the Lord through this church. And yet, I, I believe personal finances, I do believe they are a limiting factor when it comes to God's work at times. I'm not saying we feel that all the time because God uses our, our church families to help us be a, the kind of church that I, I, mean, I, I want to do more, but I'm thankful for the position we're in. But, but just think about something like, per, like personal debt. And think about if all of us had more personal debt than we could manage, think about how that would limit God's work right here at Eastside Baptist Church. I mean, and many of you know who Dave Ramsey is. I, we love Dave Ramsey. We, we've been through his program. And by the way, I, I'd like to do that at some point as a church. If you have interest in that, let me know. Um, you know, just the financial, the, the financial uh, help that he provides was help to our family. But he says on his website, almost three out of four Americans, 72%, say they're burdened by debt, including mortgages. Uh, Two-thirds of Americans um, uh, reported consumer debt with an average of, of 34,000 debt load per person. So eight out of 10 adults in the United States have at least one credit card, and 45% of American households carry that balance, which means they don't pay it off every month. The average credit card uh, debt per household with this kind of debt, credit card debt, is about $15,000. I'm not saying that every household has $15,000 of debt, but for, of the ones that have credit card debt, the average is $15,000. Those with student loan debts um, average about $30,000 in debt for their student loans. Those that have car loans, vehicle loans, they average about $30,000 for those that have a, a, a car loan. Some statistics say that about 40% of U.S. families routinely spend more than they bring in. 
That, that's, who knows if those statistics, how accurate they are. We could go on and on. I don't want to bore you with numbers. If you want to l- learn about debt from somebody who really hates it, listen to Dave Ramsey. He'll help you. You might say it this way, though. Money has become the master for many people. And that's bad enough. But if it's become the master for enough Christian Americans, then that means it's not just affecting the household finances. It's affecting the work of the Lord. Because as we build debt and as we accrue debt, we can't do all the other things we're supposed to do for the Lord because money has become the master. And it's not as if it's a new problem. Mankind's always been allured by more stuff. And it's not really just a debt problem. In many cases, it's a heart problem. Our natural desire to get more and more combined then with the fact of the last century credit has become easier and easier to get. Easy credit. I mean, it just it's a terrible combination because we already want what we see. And if we don't have the money for it now, it's easy to get the money for what we see. And then we find ourselves under a mountain of debt. So I'd like to spend a few Wednesday nights going over some short and simple financial principles from a Bible perspective as a way to help us evaluate where we are and then if changes need to be made, let's make them. And listen, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't have all the answers, but I do believe the Bible has all the answers. And if we'll submit to the Bible, it will always leave us better than where we were when we started. So if our mindset, listen, if our mindset, if your mindset needs to be adjusted to something more biblical, let's be open to it. If our practices have become undisciplined, let's adjust. If it causes us to seek help from somebody that can provide help, praise the Lord. I just want to encourage you, though, let's be open. And and we need to strive to think and operate not just fiscally, but biblically. Because remember, if money becomes our master, it doesn't just affect a family, it affects the Lord's work. And when Christ said in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters, he was referring to God and and mammon. And mammon means material possessions, which includes money. And what Christ was saying is money can become our master. And when it does, it leads to bondage. It binds us like a slave to a master. And so I want to look at a principle, though, from Solomon's life that I, I pray will be a help with our mindset toward this. And, and so we're going back to 2 Chronicles chapter 1 again here. And, and again, this isn't about money. But the fact that money plays a role in this means that there's a principle in here about money that we can apply. Solomon has just become the king of Israel. And he's following in the, in the footsteps of David, his father. And he feels inadequate for the job. I mean, can you imagine following King David? This is the guy you're following, your dad, King David, the legend, King David. And what most commentators believe is that Solomon, when he took the throne, was between 16 and 19 years old. So I'm just going to say, we're going to say for tonight's sake that he's 18 years old and he steps into this role. And the Bible says over the chapter before this, at the end of of 1 Chronicles, um, it says that, uh, we'll just look at it, 1 Chronicles 29, just one chapter before it, verse, verse 1 It says, furthermore, David the king said unto all the congregation, Solomon, my son, whom alone God hath chosen, is yet young and tender. And the work is great, for the palace is not for man, but for the Lord God. David himself admitted this guy is young and tender. 
He's 18 years old. He's probably an older teenager. And yet he has been tasked with the responsibility of building God's temple. Can you imagine that? I mean, that would be like as an 18-year-old man, um, you know, you get your first staff position at Eastside Baptist Church. And at this point, it's over on Sycamore. And your first week on the job, Brother Spencer hands you the keys and says, all right, they've got to build a building. It's all you out on 6101 East 49th Street. It's your job. See ya. And you're just left holding the keys. And, and what, I mean, where, to get something like this, when he's an 18-year-old, I mean, that, that would be, over, it's overwhelming for anybody. It'd be overwhelming, though, for somebody like Solomon, who's coming in, and even David, his own father, says he's young and tender. I imagine he probably winced when David, when David described him as young and tender, but that's what he was. How does a young and tender king lead a strong and mighty nation? Well, the primary reason, I believe, is because, look at verse 1 of, of, our, of Second Chronicles, it says, and Solomon, the son of David, was strengthened in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and magnified him exceedingly. You want to know how Solomon did the work? It's because God was with him and God magnified him. I mean, this was God doing the work in him. This was God raising him up and giving him something of a divine nature that no one else could explain. This is God being with him. And, 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 but there's another reason. It's not just because God forced it on Solomon. It's because Solomon had a spirit that I think we could all learn from. And we read the text earlier. Solomon, came, verse 7. In that night, God, uh, did God appear to Solomon and said unto him, Ask what I shall give thee. So God comes to him. And as a new king, an 18-year-old king, God comes to him and gives him a blank check. I mean, a blank check. Can you, I mean, what would you have asked for as a, an 18-year-old? I mean, he, he could have asked for money. He could have asked, asked for victory over his enemies. He could have asked for a long life. I mean, what would you ask for if you had a blank check? Okay, Josiah, how old are you? 17, okay? Say, so we're going to pretend like Josiah is Solomon, the new king. Okay, he's young and tender, okay? Josiah, if you had a blank check, what would you, what would you ask for? This is, maybe I shouldn't have asked Josiah. Okay, by faith, Josiah, I'm asking you, what would you ask for? The, I knew he would say this. The world's largest skateboarding park. I'm not surprised he said that. In my mind, I, think, I, I was thinking something about skateboarding. That's what he's going to ask. Anybody else close to 18 years old? Jonah, how old are you? 17. What would you ask for? A blank check from God. What would you ask for? A girlfriend? Okay, all right, well. <laughs> yep, blank check. <laughs> oh, I wish I had a microphone. <laughs> the truth is, most 18-year-olds would have asked for something like that or that. And yet here's Solomon, who's in over his head enough to know if he doesn't have God's help, it's not going to work. And he asks for something beyond his years. Solomon, verse 8, said unto God, Thou hast showed great mercy unto David my father, and hast made me to reign in his stead. Now, O Lord God, let thy promise unto David my father be established, for thou hast made me king over a people like the dust of the earth in multitude. Give me now wisdom and knowledge, that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can judge this thy people that is so great? 
He chose wisdom and understanding to lead God's people. That's what he asked for. And of all the physical things he could have asked for or chosen, he went with wisdom. And there's a special humility in Solomon's life right here that is not apparent later in his life. And right now he is truly dependent on the Lord. And guess what? Because he asked for wisdom and because he asked for knowledge, then God gave him all the things that were probably going through his head. Verse 11, God said to Solomon, because this, this was in thine heart and thou hast not asked riches, wealth, or honor, nor the life of thine enemies, neither yet has asked a long life, but has asked wisdom and knowledge for thyself, that thou mayest judge my people over whom I have made thee king. Wisdom and knowledge is granted unto thee, and, and I will give thee riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings have had that have been before thee, neither shall there any after thee have the like. Solomon's priority, and here's where we started to really get to the application Solomon's priority toward wisdom pleased the Lord and God granted him all the things he was probably in his 18-year-old head thinking about. I could ask for riches. I could ask for wealth. I could ask for honor. I could ask for a skate park. Anything I want, I could ask it. But what came out of his mouth was wisdom and knowledge. Because he had the bright priorities, God granted him the other things. See, notice Solomon's priorities. He wants to do what God wanted him to do successfully. That's what he wants to do. He, he knows that his life priority is to succeed at what God has called him to do. His priority was God's calling in his life. We would do well to remember that God's calling on our lives is our number one priority. Always. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then what? All these things shall be added unto you. The principles in the New Testament too... The other thing that was his priority was not just that he would do what God asked him to do successfully, but that he wanted to be sure God's house was taken care of. You talk about right priorities. Solomon loved the Lord and he loved God's house and he knew that God's house was a significant part of God's work. It was a place that represented God to the world and then gave the Jews a location in which they could serve God and that was at the top of his list. When you prioritize God's house, I'm telling you, God will take care of you. He will bless you. And then, then, after all that, he deals with his own house. Listen, our own houses are important, too. We should, we should make sure we have a place for our families to dwell safely. And not only that, we should provide for our household. Uh, it's it, wise decisions like savings. It's wise. Emergency funds. I know Dave Ramsey's big on them. It's wise. I can't tell you how many times in our marriage... An emergency fund has bailed us out from going into debt. So, and you say, well, we always wipe it out and have something else to spend it on. But I'm thankful it's there. We don't have to put something like a new dishwasher on a credit card because we have an emergency fund. It's wise. Somebody gave us that advice years ago. So savings and emergency funds, those are wise. Insurance, it's, it's, it's a smart thing to have, if, to have insurance. And those are things that you take care of. It's not like those aren't important. But Solomon placed priority over God's, on God's house, even over his own house. He, that was his priority. He prioritized God's work above even his own desires. And then God gave him his desires. So what does this have to do with finances? Well, Solomon did, did things the right way. He prioritized the Lord over mammon. He, he prioritized the spiritual over the physical. In other words, here's, here's the whole thought, is that he chose the right master. 
He chose the right master. And let's go back to the root problem we talked about at the beginning. Too many Americans and too many Christians are in bondage financially, which means either they deliberately or by default have chosen to be bound by the wrong master. And in my estimation, I think about two kinds of bondage. The first would be bondage from being in financial debt. That, that, that is bondage. If you've ever been in debt and you don't know how you can even make the minimum payments, it's bondage. And if you're a prisoner of debt, it means you can't give as you're supposed to. And I've known many people that wanted to do more for the Lord, but because of their debt, they weren't able to. As a prisoner of debt, your career decisions become mostly based on the pressure to produce more income. And so you find yourself making decisions that are really more about the money than they are, how will this affect my family? How will this affect my church life? How will this affect my spiritual life? I mean, I'm going to make this decision to take this job in a city I don't even know if there's a good church in. I've seen that happen many times too. People are, if you're a prisoner of debt, you find yourself making decisions based on a job instead of other things. If you're a prisoner of debt, your marriage suffers due to the pressure from mistakes. And, I, I, and they say maybe it's one of the first or, se- maybe the first or second reason that, that married couples have fights or conflict or tension is because of money. And usually it's because you've got the hippie, free spender, on one hand, and you've got the Scrooge that doesn't want to spend anything, and there's no balance, okay? And in your marriage, you know this, one of you's the hippie and one of you's the Scrooge. You know how that works. So I don't, I'm not going to even ask you to raise your hands, you know, to tell us who's who. So I'll just say in my marriage, I'm Scrooge, okay? <laughs> I didn't say anything else. You are jumping to conclusions. Desperation from debt and bad credit, it leads to unwise decisions in, in, just in order to meet needs. You find yourself making decisions just to meet needs. So that's one kind of bondage. It's bondage and financial debt. The other is bondage from being money-centered. And that you're not necessarily, that doesn't mean you're in debt, but money is, is what you chase. And money is, it, it's, it's not a prison just because of debt. You may not even have debt, but you become a prisoner because, not because of debt, but because of your dreams. In the heartstrings, they become attached to the thought of acquiring more and having more money. And, they, and so people in this place, they chase money however they can. And in order to accomplish their goals, they become driven by money decisions. So life is no longer about where can I make the biggest difference for God's kingdom. And instead, it becomes where can I make the most money? If I can fit in some, some of God's kingdom later, I will. But right now, it's really about the money. That's what I'm chasing. And the chances are, so you've got, one, you've got one category. These are the people that are in, in a, a prisoner, of, in bondage to debt. Now, on the other hand, you've got people that are prisoner in bondage to their dreams. Some are in debt, but others are chasing money. And the chances are you're, in, you're either or. You're in one of those categories. You're either in bondage to debt or you're in bondage to your dreams. And listen, praise the Lord. If neither category applies to you, that's, that's great. But I imagine that most of us have a direction we would lean. We would either lean toward taking on too much debt or we would lean toward chasing money and, and chasing our dreams, if you want to say it that way. And if nothing else, any of us could find ourselves in one of these two categories if we let our guard down. 
And my desire is to spend some time on a few Wednesday nights addressing both kinds of bondage. You've got debt and desire. Listen, because both of those make terrible masters. If your decisions are based on your debt, you're not making your decisions based on how the Lord's leading you. And if you're making your decisions based on desire, then you're likely not allowing the Lord to lead your decision-making. So there's some basic principles, and then we'll close here. The basic principles upon which financial freedom can be found. And if you want to write these down, this could be a help. Listen, number one, money is a means, not an end. Money is a means, not an end. And Solomon, his life, his prayer right here, he, he needed money to finish God's house. He needed money to, to build his own house. He needed finances. But he pursued succeeding at what God asked him to do first and then trusted God to bless him with what he needed to accomplish the rest. So he put God first. Money was to him. Money is important for certain things, but it's not the end itself. The end for Solomon was, I want to please God. And if I please God, he'll provide all of those other things. See, money is to be the servant, not the master. And there are some ends that money helps us to achieve. Absolutely. In fact, it's necessary to achieve many things. You've got to have finances. But when money becomes an end, you'd, you'd find yourself surprised at the things you'll turn into a means. Meaning, if money is your priority, there, I know people that have turned their family into the means. Meaning their, their goal is money at the expense of their family. I know plenty of dads that have taken a job that, that paid a lot of money, but guess who suffered for it at home? Their family. And you'd be surprised at the things that you turn into a means. I know plenty of people that are driven by money and they make decisions based on money and their church becomes the means. Maybe their end is the money, and if the church is, if the church, their church involvement, their church life, their service to the church, if that is lost along the way, it doesn't matter because they're shooting for the money. I know people that have given up friends. I know people that have worked themselves so hard that they lost their health in the process. Money was the end, and their health was the means. Number two, so money is a means, not an end. Number two, your money belongs to God. And I, we could say this every week and, and still not hear it enough. Some believe that God owns the percentage of what they give. And that sounds right because he does own that, but he also owns everything else. Because the Bible says that you've been bought with a price, and that includes everything that you have. So when you withhold money, or sub, you are subliminally, subliminal, sub, you are not, not really explicitly saying that you have a lesser value on the death that Jesus Christ paid for you. Because he, he, bought, he died to get, to, to get all of it. And so when you just give him part of it, you are saying that his death doesn't have as, it's not as valuable to you as it might be to somebody who gives him all of it. But listen, your money, your money belongs to God because you belong to God and everything that you have belongs to God. What we subject to God's control reveals how we value him. Number three, your God-given goals must drive your financial decisions. Your God-given goals must drive your financial decisions because your heart will be where your treasure is. And so Jesus says, arrange your treasures around heaven. 
That, if that's your goal, if that is your purpose, then you will make your decisions based on that. And it, and it leaves you the most fulfilled in the end. So this is where a lot of us get off is that we think that having all the stuff along the way will be where we find our contentment. But we lose sight of the fact that no, our complete satisfaction is found when we put God first. When our God-given goals are first and they're driving our financial decisions, that's when you'll find your most complete satisfaction. You could say complete, complete satisfaction is the result of co complete surrender. Number four, contentment produces more happiness than wealth. Contentment produces more happiness than wealth. When wealthy people get close to the end, you don't hear very many of them say, I, I should have gotten, gotten another million dollars. They, they don't wish that they'd spent more time at the office because money does not produce happiness. Now, money doesn't produce happiness, but it can certainly affect our happiness because when we mismanage our money and we have a load of debt or, a lo or we're driven by desire like we shouldn't be, I'm telling you, it can make a person miserable. There's a place of contentment where you can enjoy life and just... Be satisfied in the Lord. You don't have to live in poverty. By the, I mean, we don't, by the way. We're among the richest in the world. Just by this, based on the simple fact that we're citizens of the United States of America. We are in the top percentages compared to the rest of the world. Listen, but you, don't, you, you don't live in poverty, but you also don't have to be rich to be content. You don't have to be one or the other. Listen, there's a place right in the middle, and that place is contentment in Jesus Christ. And that you're not always chasing what you don't have. And, and you're not unthankful for what you do have. To just be content. It's right there in the middle. That's where we ought to be. And here's why. Money is a terrible master. It, has it become your master because of debt? Or maybe it's become your, your master because of desire. Listen, both are bondage. Both make you prisoners of your money. Has God been the priority in your finances? Or have you subjected the spiritual things to money as the end? You've sacrificed the spiritual things on the altar of the almighty dollar. And now everything else sits in the back seat and money's driving. Let's get our priorities straight when it comes to money. Sure, it can be a help in many ways as long as it's the means and not the end. And as soon as it becomes the end, we all will find out. And many in here have, and you've come through this, but you have found out that money makes a terrible master. So why would we subject ourselves to something that, number one, it can't satisfy us, and number two, it will lead us to bondage. When we could submit ourselves to Jesus Christ, who will satisfy us in every way, and to be his servant would be the greatest honor we could ever ask. So let's just make a decision now as, as members of Eastside, as Christians in America, that we are going to be careful about, how, about which master we serve. Because it's easy to try to serve two masters, but you can't. And some masters are just awful masters, money being one of them. Let's stand together. I gave you an opportunity to respond. You know, it's a very practical thought tonight, but I also know that it's easy to lose sight of our priorities in the area of our finances. And sometimes I think we think, well, we don't want anybody to know we're struggling in this, but it's, hum it's human nature to struggle in this area. That's why we need to hear truth like we did tonight so that our focus can remain where it needs to be.
telling you money makes a terrible master. If it's a master for you in any way in your life, would you consider responding to the Lord as he leads you tonight? We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.